Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One year into the Second World War, German Chancellor Adolf Hitler and the Nazi High Command sought to deplete, destroy and demoralise Britain with a series of devastating bombing raids, beginning with what the Luftwaffe called Unternahme Seeschlange, or Operation Sea Snake. A terrifying attack from the clouds, so fast and so deadly that the British people referred to it by the German word for lightning. They called it the Blitz. Between the 7th of September 1940 and the 11th of May 1941, German bombers rained down over 41,000 tonnes of high explosives, incendiary devices and parachute mines onto Britain's industrial cities. Their terrifying tactics, designed to frighten the people into submission and bring Britain to its knees. But amidst the smoky bombed-out inferno of London's West End, with a blackout in force, which plunged the soot-covered city into a perpetual darkness, as the petrified populace scoured the skies for German mass murderers who loomed above, a person of pure evil stalked the city streets. In the early hours of Monday the 9th of February 1942, Evelyn Hamilton, a shy and timid pharmacist who had celebrated her 41st birthday alone, was found strangled in an air raid shelter in Montague Place. Initially, the police thought that this was just a one-off attack. But little did they know that they had a serial sexual sadist and a spree killer in their midst. And his killings had only just begun. Over five days, six unrelated women across different parts of London's West End would be brutally attacked with escalating levels of sadism, torture and violence. But with his bloodlust unquenched, just one day later, he would go in search of his next victim. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile, and I present to you part two of the full, true, and untold story 
of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing on Wardour Street, back in the heart of Soho. One road west of Old Compton Street, and barely a one-minute walk from the murder sites of the deadly dentist Isidore Zeefert, shadowy sex worker Margaret Cook, sweet-faced fanny seller Ginger Ray, crazed cock-chopper William Stolzer, and chronic Canadian willy-fiddler Richard Rhodes Henley. Sadly, this unsightly side of Wardour Street has been stripped of its soul and replaced by nosh shops for numpties, takeaways for twits, and wanky eateries for the anally retentive, which somehow survive by selling one type of food, whether ham, fish, or hummus, by avoiding one type of food, whether meat, wheat, or milk, by rebranding Buffets as street foods, salads as main meals, sandwiches as some kind of luxury, and where cigar shops flog off 30 quid's worth of old rolled leaves to non-smokers who light up, lean back, and aim to act cool, slick, and aloof, but instead look green, sick, and queasy. And although by the 1940s, This side of Soho was full of drafty, bombed-out, hardly habitable terraces, only suitable as homes for the less fortunate, many of which have since been demolished. It was here, at 153 Wardour Street, that an ambitious woman called Evelyn Oatley came to London to seek her fame and fortune. But instead, she found infamy as the second victim of the Blackout Ripper. Born Evelyn Judd on the 5th of April 1907 in Earby in Lancashire, a small rural town hidden in the barren wilds of the former West Yorkshire Dales, its chief occupations being lead mining and farming. With a population of roughly 70 families and six times as many cows, sheep and pigs. Raised by her beloved mother, Rosina, busy father and one brother. Although her childhood was poor but pleasant. For young Evelyn, Irby was an industrial eyesore in a dull rural setting. Where the air hung with soot and the strong stench of manure a far cry from the bright lights of London's West End. Desperate to escape, to act, to sing, to dance, and to blossom into Shaftesbury Avenue's latest sensation, selling out theatres every night and surrounded by adoring fans, lackeys and lovers, Evelyn's hopes were dashed early, as with Earby not blessed with a single playhouse, drama school, and no theatre producers driving by, eager for a new blonde ingenue to headline his latest West End shows, and maybe later, Broadway, and even Hollywood too. Evelyn left school aged 14, with no skills, nor qualifications, and drifted into a series of dead-end jobs, 
trapped by isolation and circumstance. Still dreaming of being famous and adored, aged 15, unmarried Evelyn gained local notoriety by becoming pregnant by an unknown man. A big scandal in the early 1920s. So unable to support the child, Evelyn's daughter was put up for adoption, later living her life somewhere in Canada. By 1932, 25-year-old Evelyn Judd met Harold Mullinson Oatley, a kind, loving and sweet-natured poultry farmer who could provide her with a good life, full of love, money and a sweet little bungalow on Rover Road in the larger but equally isolated town of Thornton in Lancashire. But Evelyn didn't want to be a chicken farmer's wife. She wanted to be an actress. So being too timid to dissuade her of the dangers of big city life, and hoping that she'd eventually see sense, get the acting bug out of her system, and come back to marry him, her beloved boyfriend Harold financed Evelyn's trip to London to fulfil her dreams. In late 1934, 27-year-old Evelyn Judd moved into a cheap and tiny lodging on Great Portland Street at the back of Oxford Circus. And having adopted the stage name of Lita Ward, she eked out a meagre living as a nightclub hostess, a dancer in disreputable theatres, and even at Soho's infamous Windmill Theatre, where every night topless girls jiggled their tits and swung their tassels to crowds of drunk, drooling deadbeats. To most people, Evelyn's new lifestyle may have seemed cheap, tacky and low rent. But as a country girl from a remote northern town, whose ambitions had been crushed for 27 long years, now she was embracing every ounce of big city life and finally, her dream had come true. But by March 1936, after 16 months in the bright lights of the West End, fame hadn't come calling for this almost 30-year-old topless dancer. Work had dried up, as younger legs and prettier faces scored all the best roles. And with her money having ran out, Evelyn returned to the poultry farm, where just a few months later, on the 25th of June 1936, she married Harold and became Mrs. Evelyn Oatley. As predicted, married life wasn't for Evelyn. She found no joy in staying in every night, playing Scrabble with her homebody husband. No peace being tucked up in bed with a book by 9pm. And no reward cleaning out crap out of the chicken coops. As having tasted the excitement of the big city, she knew she wanted more. Trapped in a dull life of squawking birds, in local hotels under an assumed name, Evelyn started clandestine affairs with married men 
and continued to live and work in London. All under the nose of Harold, who was too ineffectual to stop her and too dull to offer her an alternative. One year later, with money tight, tensions fraught, and his poultry farm having gone out of business, even though he'd been forced to move into his aunt's house in nearby Cleveleys in Lancashire, as desperate as Harold was to please his wayward wife, although they remained married and stayed in touch, Evelyn returned to London, knowing she would never be a big star, but loving the nightlife. By February 1939, with Britain on the brink of Second World War, Evelyn Oatley had moved into a tiny one-roomed flat on the first floor of 153 Wardour Street. A simple four-storey townhouse with a ground floor of five houses converted into a motorcar showroom called Shaw and Kilburn. And although she shared a kitchen and a bathroom with five other flats, and her small room was simply furnished with a double divan bed, a sofa, an armchair, a table, a washstand, a wireless radio, and a gas fire with a coin slot meter. Even though she kept some plates and cutlery in the wardrobe, mostly she'd eat out, spending her nights drinking, dancing, and attracting the attention of men. With her dancing roles having dried up and the adulation and applause of audiences over, Evelyn wanted a gentleman admirer to sweep her off her feet. A man with money who would lavish her with gifts, flowers, love and trinkets. And having a lust for real men who were tall and toned, with easy smiles, kind blue eyes and neatly dressed in military uniforms. While still married, Evelyn had several boyfriends, all of whom Harold knew about, and none of whom looked like Harold. As World War II broke out, a blackout was enforced and British and Canadian servicemen flooded the West End with money to spend drinks to be drunk and girls to be chased, Evelyn should have had the pick of the crop. But too often, having had her heart broken by these heartless heroes, every time this would happen, Harold would always be there as a shoulder to cry on and to pick up the pieces. And as much as they remained close, with Harold travelling the 12-hour round trip from Lancashire to London every few weeks. He naively believed that his beloved wife worked as a nightclub hostess and a dancer in the West End theatres. But for the last six years, ever since they'd been married, Evelyn Oatley, known locally as Lita Ward, 
had earned herself a living as a Soho prostitute. Being five foot one inches tall, seven stone in weight, with dark blonde curly hair, blue eyes and a cheeky smile, Evelyn was well regarded amongst Soho sex workers as fun, honest and generous. And as a confident woman, Evelyn had no qualms about picking up punters and bringing them back to her flat for drinks and sex. But being flirtatious and charming, she was also adept at luring any potential sugar daddies not just to spend the night, but also to spend the day after, with free meals, expensive gifts and shopping trips. And as much as Evelyn was a woman of morals, who never stole from customers, never worked on Sundays, and only picked up punters on her patch, she was also a heavy drinker of scotch, not picky about the men she picked up. And according to a close friend, she was a desperately lonely lady who craved attention, feared solitude, and longed to be loved. The last time Harold saw Evelyn was on Tuesday the 3rd of February 1942 at Euston Station. As from the train which took him back to Lancashire, he waved his beloved wife goodbye. Hoping one day that she would come back to him and never realising that the next time he would see her, she would be dead. Six days later, on the morning of Monday the 9th of February 1942, in an air raid shelter on Montague Place, barely one mile from Wardour Street, the strangled and mutilated body of Evelyn Hamilton would be found. Police thought it was a one-off. But with his sadism still unsated, that evening, the blackout ripper would stalk the West End looking for his next victim, and her name was Evelyn Oakley. The evening of Monday the 9th of February 1942 was bitterly cold. As an icy wind blew from the east, swirling the freshly settled snow down the half-empty streets of the West End. On her regular patch, a stretch of pavement from Lawley's Fine Bone China Shop on Regent Street to Piccadilly Circus, Evelyn paced back and forth to keep herself warm. The piping hot bowl of vegetable stew and a quick shot of scotch that she'd just polished off at the Leicester Arms pub, straining to keep out the cold. Dressed fashionably in a bright red jumper, a tweed two-piece jacket and skirt, black boots, a black leather handbag and a black woolen hat, her top decorated with three brooches, one yellow, one red and one in white metal. Her style was impossible to see, as with the night being so infernally cold, Evelyn had her knee-length black coat buttoned up to her neck. But with business being bad, boredom creeping in, amidst the miserable darkness of the blackout, 
As switched off for the full duration of the war were the famous Piccadilly Circus lights. Evelyn stood in the doorway of Lawley's, illuminated by the red-hot tip of her cigarette, which was taken from her stylish white metal cigarette case. Etched with her initials, LW, short for Lita Ward, a sole reminder of her lost acting ambition. And inside, a photo of her beloved mother, Rosina. Feeling cold and lonely, Evelyn wouldn't be choosy about who she picked up, as all money was good, and all she wanted was to head home, pop on the fire, and hop into bed. But soon, she would be cold for a very different reason. And what follows are the last known sightings of Evelyn Oatley. At 10.15pm, on the corner of Regent Street and Piccadilly Circus, two Soho prostitutes and close pals of Evelyn, one blonde called Laura Denmark and a brunette called Molly de Santos Alves, waved to their friend as she stood outside Lawley's smoking. With both Laura and Molly having been chatted up by two tall, slim and handsome if slightly sozzled RAF men from the Royal Air Force Reception Centre in nearby Regent's Park, they took the men back to their flats. Molly headed to Denham Street with the red-headed corporal, and Laura headed to Frith Street with the fair-haired aircraftman. At 11pm, outside Monaco's, a reputable late-night restaurant once used as a pickup place for sex workers and servicemen, on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Piccadilly Circus, a part-time waitress and prostitute called Anne Carew saw Evelyn, who she knew as Lita Ward, chatting to a Canadian soldier dressed in a khaki battle dress. And although cold, she seemed chatty and only a little bit tipsy. And seeing Anne... She waved, wished her a good night, and guided the military man towards her flat through the darklit streets of Soho, guided solely by the dim light of her six-inch metal torch. At a little after 11.20pm, Ivy Cecilia Poole, a funfair attendant and Evelyn's neighbour, who lived in the adjoining flat on the first floor of 153 Wardour Street, saw Evelyn escorting a man up the wooden staircase. But he wasn't Canadian, or in khaki battle dress, but a young, tall and pasty civilian in a brown suit with horn-rimmed glasses. And although he wasn't Evelyn's type, as the night was cold, Money was money, and with most men's sexual prowess, being less of a stud muffin and more of a two pumps and a squirt merchant, Evelyn knew he'd only need a few minutes until he was done, before she would head out again and pick up another punter. As Evelyn closed the wooden door, 
marked with a metal plate which read Lita Ward. Ivy heard Evelyn and the young man chat. As with their penny-pinching landlord having split one large room in half with two folding doors to create two smaller flats, the walls were wafer-thin and Ivy could hear everything. Sharing such a small space, Evelyn was always so considerate of noise. But that night, she wasn't. Instead, switching her bedside radio from news to music, she turned up the volume until the recognisable sounds of the couple's mumbling, fumbling and groaning was drowned out. And eager to sleep, Ivy popped in her earplugs placed her pillow over her head and nodded off around midnight. That was the last time that 34-year-old Evelyn Oatley was heard or seen alive ever again. The next morning... On Tuesday the 10th of February 1942 at 8.20am, with her room all dark and silent, Ivy had slept so soundly over the last eight hours that she barely heard the loud banging on her door. Alerted to the noise by her startled cat, Ivy groggily unlocked the door to see the familiar face of Charles Victor Fleming of the Central London Electricity Company, who along with his assistant, George Kenny Carter, were here to read each flat's electricity meters and collect this month's shillings from the coin slot. It was just an ordinary day for three ordinary people going about their ordinary lives. As with Ivy, who was still sporting her bathrobe and slippers, George knocked loudly on Evelyn's door. But with it barely being an hour after dusk, he got no reply. Knocking louder, George noticed the door was ajar. But as a timid young man, who was too polite to simply barge into a strange lady's boudoir uninvited, and risk seeing things that a young man should never see, like frilly things and ladies' monthly unmentionables, George continued to knock. Sensing the shy youth's frustration and sporting some awful bed hair, Ivy tapped loudly as she opened the door. With the windows blacked out, the lights off, the fire out, and the last shilling in the electricity meter having been spent. As much as Ivy flicked the light switches, the flat remained in pitch black. But as they entered the room, it was clear that they weren't alone. Someone was there, lying on the bed, all silent and still. And as George Kenny Carter flicked on his torch to see who it was, as the dull light illuminated the shape on the bed, he stopped, blinked, and gasped, 
having seen a sight which no one should ever see. First on the scene at 8.35am was Inspector John Hennessy of West End Central Police Station. Having spent the night at the police section house on Broadwick Street, just one street behind, who secured the scene to ensure that nothing was touched and was swiftly followed by Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey and Divisional Surgeon Dr Alexander Baldy at 8.50am and Divisional Detective Inspector Charles Gray at 9.15am. With no windows open, no fire on, and the female victim, a five-foot-one-inch, mid-thirties blonde, in the early stages of rigor mortis, Dr. Baldy recorded that she had been dead for at least four hours. And although the name on the door read Lita Ward, she was quickly identified as Evelyn Oatley. What startled the police, beyond the sickening extent of her horrific injuries, was how tidy the room was. Nothing had been tipped over, very little was broken, and there didn't seem to have been a struggle. In fact, almost everything seemed to have been just as Evelyn had left it just a few hours before. It was almost as if she had welcomed her attacker in, had known him, liked him, or simply felt comfortable with him. And yet this shocking and vicious attack had come out of the blue. On the mantelpiece, where she'd always kept them, Evelyn had placed the keys to her flat. On the sofa were her clothes, neatly placed and ready to be reworn. A bright red jumper, a black hat, and a tweed two-piece jacket and skirt. On an armchair, she had placed her black boots, a slip, a brassiere, and a pair of black stockings by the fire. And in the right-hand side of her wardrobe, where she always put it, was her black knee-length coat, along with her black leather handbag. Oddly, the only damage in the whole room was the wardrobe's lock, which, although the key was still in it, had been violently broken off. Evelyn's handbag had been removed, and the contents strewn over the sofa. And whoever the attacker was, he'd ignored her bank books and ration coupons, and only stole two items roughly £30, which is £600 today, from her brown leather purse and her white metal cigarette case, etched with her initials LW, and inside, a photo of her mother. Was this a robbery? Was this a burglary? Was this a rape? The police were perplexed. But whoever it was who'd attacked her had a deep-rooted hatred for either prostitutes, women, or Evelyn Oatley. As not only was her attack brutal and sickening, but her torture was prolonged and humiliating. In the centre of the room, with the headboard against the wall, 
Between two blacked-out windows was her double divan bed. Lying face up and sprawled diagonally across the freshly made sheets was the cold corpse of Evelyn Oatley. Her body splayed and posed, with her thin cotton vest and silk nightdress rolled up, exposing her legs, genitals and breasts. With no one having heard her scream, and the bruised outlines of a thumb and four fingers across her throat and neck, Evelyn was initially strangled by hand in an unprovoked attack, which trapped her windpipe, crushed her vocal cords, and made her more pliable. As although she drifted in and out of consciousness for the next few minutes, what happened next was done while she was still alive. With her head slumped backward, hanging over the side of the bed, using the two-inch blade of an ever-ready razor, a five-and-a-half-inch wound was cut from her right ear to her voice box. So deep it exposed her throat, split open her jugular vein, and left a six-foot trail of blood from the bed to the door. As Evelyn clutched onto her last few moments alive, being immobile as her body was drained of blood, her bare legs were splayed wide. And as with Evelyn Hamilton, although there was no semen found in her vagina, in and around her genitals were a series of twelve unusual wounds, some less than half an inch long, one more than three and a half inches long, but all were rough jagged tears, made using an old-style kitchen can opener with a sharp hooked claw. But his sadism hadn't stopped there, as having placed the metal can opener next to her left knee and posed the blood-soaked razor blade next to Evelyn's ghostly white face, as well as an ominous set of blood-stained curling tongs. Her sadistic killer, not content with her torture and humiliation, had inserted, four inches deep, her six-inch metal torch into her open and exposed vagina. The autopsy of Evelyn Oatley was conducted that day by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, home office pathologist and father of forensic science, who just 24 hours earlier had examined the body of Evelyn Hamilton, and although there were differences between both attacks, their ages, hair colour, occupations and the locations of their deaths, with one in public and the other at home, the similarities were striking. Both women were lonely and alone. Both women were in the West End. Both women had been robbed of roughly £20. Neither woman had been raped. Both had been posed. Both had been exposed. Both had unusual cuts to their genitals. 
and non-specific internal injuries to their vaginas. One made using a six-inch metal torch, and the other within sight of an eight-inch metal torch. And although the police wouldn't know this yet, in each case, their murderer had taken a souvenir. Was this the same man, or merely chance? Was this a spree killer, or a strikingly similar attack? With Evelyn Oatley's long fingernails being unbroken, they knew her attacker was swift. With bruise marks on their necks, the police knew they'd both been strangled by a left-hander. And although Superintendent Frederick Cherrill of Scotland Yard's print bureau had found a left thumb print on Evelyn Oatley's compact mirror, touched as her killer had rifled her handbag looking for money, and a left little fingerprint on the metal can opener he had used to mutilate his latest victim. None of these prints were on file. If the same man had murdered both women, the police wouldn't have time to even contemplate the horror of a spree killer in their midst. As with his violence escalating, his bloodlust pumping, and his sadism unsated, he was only two days into what would be a five-day killing spree. And as darkness fell over London, once again, he headed into Soho to find the next victim of the Blackout Ripper. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to join us next week for the third part of the true story of the Blackout Ripper. A big thank you this week goes out to my brand new Patreon supporters, who get exclusive access to original Murder Mile content, including crime scene photos, murder location videos, and patron-only Extra Mile episodes from the first 20 cases. <gasps> what lucky people! These fabulous people are the amazing Hannah Merzer, who has been an absolute dream on social media, so thank you Hannah, the wonderful Elizabeth Nazarelli, who loves murder so much that she's willing to pay $3 a month to see more, weirdo, and someone who calls themselves Helen Buchanan Dunn, who loves Murder Mile so much that she's stolen my surname and even some of my DNA. I think. Either that or she's my sister. To join the Murder Mile Patreon group, click on the link in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is part three of our series Into the Blackout Ripper. Thank you for listening and sleep well. How 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello? Hello? Hello again. Welcome back, friends, to Extra Mile. Uh, If you've never been here before, this is Extra Mile. This is a special part of Murder Mile that's hidden away at the end. Uh, Most people have probably switched off by this point. They probably don't want to listen to the outro or the kind of promos or the the thank yous, unless their name's on there and they want to go, oh, that's my name. That's exciting, which it is. Uh, Most people are switched off. But for those of you who've waited you'll realise that there's a nice big chunk at the end. What we do here is we discuss, uh, well, discuss, it's not really discuss, it's me talking, isn't it? If there were other people here, that would be a discussion. This is just me waffling, blah, 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 blah. What we do is uh, I, I raise some of the issues that have been uh, discussed in this episode uh, and point you towards some interesting things that you might not have spoken, might not have, mo- might not have noticed, or... Um, 
things that I couldn't get into the case. And as you probably noticed, it's full of mistakes. It's full of me tripping over my words because it's all unscripted. There's no music. There's no sound effects. It's just me. <gasps> and I only seem to breathe once every hour. Right. Second victim of the Blackout Ripper. Uh, I think hopefully by now you can see why I'm really interested in the Blackout Ripper case. It's one of those cases that's never been discussed. It only makes it into occasional books or TV series, but no one has really covered it properly, intensively. And that's what I'm trying to do here is to give you as much information as possible. So this really is, it's going to be a seven part series. Uh, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it already. Fascinating case. Um, really love looking into the life of Evelyn Oatley or Evelyn Judd, all those little details. Um, as you know, I like to look into the early life of people because I think as soon as you should start in their childhood and look at where they come from, you get a sense of what their hopes and dreams and ambitions are. And with Evelyn Oakley, you can clearly see that. You can clearly see she grew up in like the wilds of Lancashire. It's now, now it's really West Yorkshire. Uh, but back then it was Lancashire because the boundaries have changed over time. So if anyone is messaging me now saying Earby is in West Yorkshire, yes, I know that. But back then it was in Lancashire. It was... So, yeah, don't blame me. Blame Yorkshire and Lancashire. Uh, they're the people who split up their boundaries. So uh, looking at her life, uh, she grew up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, very much a lead mining town. She wanted to be an actress. She was miles away from the city. There's no way she was ever going to make it. Uh, weirdly I sympathise with her because I grew up in the country as well uh, always wanted to work in film and television knew no one in television uh, never thought it was going to happen and I did the same I came to London um, worked really hard managed to end up working for the BBC and working for film companies as well um, by working my arse off uh, but I didn't end up a pro prostitute although sometimes I did feel like I was going that way um, very hard to pin down some of the details uh, about Evelyn Oatley. Um, but uh, she was really, really was fascinating. I tried to give you as much as possible in this episode. Uh, what I find fascinating is um, that she was a woman who was very desperate for love. But she didn't want Harold's love, her husband's love. She It's almost as if she was kind of just using him for money and support. He was going to be like the emotional linchpin around her life where he would pick up the pieces but she just didn't love him. So it's kind of, I feel sorry for both of them there because he was quite, he was quite ineffectual um, and she just didn't love him at all. Um, what she wanted was fame. Um, interestingly, she, she wanted to be an actress, but she wasn't, she really didn't want to do the hard work. She just wanted to get the adoration, people signing, getting her autograph, that kind of thing. But she didn't want to put in the hard work. Um, Something that's not in the episode, I did try to put it in, but I couldn't find a way of putting it in without throwing you off. Sometimes I have to keep details out because otherwise it'll throw you off in an entirely wrong direction of trying to work out who the Blackout Ripper is. Um, so one thing that we do know is that Evelyn had many boyfriends. Um, a couple of months before she was murdered, um, she had a boyfriend called Graham. Uh, now, as you know, in this episode i've mentioned a lot that she loved the men in military uniforms she had a very specific type she loved all kind of men in military uniforms and that's what she was going after she had a boyfriend called graham he was a corporal in the army he was based in dorset which is south west of uh, the united kingdom on the coast uh he really liked evelyn uh he dated her for quite a while he even bought her an engagement ring 
even though she was married. So Graham went to Harold, who knew about this relationship, do you know, because he was hoping that eventually she'd just give up the ghost and come home. Uh, he asked Harold to divorce her and to keep, to please his wife, to please Evelyn. He said, yes. He said, I will divorce her just to make her happy. But before the engagement even got anywhere, Graham had dumped Evelyn. And then once again, Harold came all the way down from Lancashire down to London to pick up the pieces, um, you know, to soak up her tears and give her a shoulder to cry on. It's quite sad. Both their lives quite sad, really. Um, uh, just so you know, Graham had nothing to do with the murder. Uh, the police did investigate him. They tried to invest. They couldn't investigate the men who come to visit Evelyn because obviously being a prostitute, there's no names kept at all. It's all clandestine. So as much as police said, look, we need to get in touch with all of the men who slept with Evelyn that night. And they estimate there was between seven and ten. So there's quite a few different people. They, they couldn't track any of them down. Because if you're a man who uses a prostitute, which is illegal, are you really going to go to the police? No, of course not. So the police did look into Graham. Uh, he was back in Dorset at the time. He was uh, on the army base. Um, and there was loads of witnesses who proved that he was there. So he had nothing to do with the murder at all. He's not the Blackout Ripper. Trust me, I know who the Blackout Ripper is, uh, which is why I'm playing this case very carefully. Um, now, you probably noticed uh, there's uh, a lot of evidence cropping up. I, I, I mentioned a lot of different things, as with Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oakley, both cases, I mentioned a lot of evidence. It feels like a wealth of evidence, but a lot of things will come back later on. So what I don't want to do is is be one of those programs, one of those shows where they go, oh, look, this is the evidence you need to look at. And it's, there's a big sign saying big evidence here. What I'm trying to do is give you everything, give you all of the facts so you can make up your own idea about what is going on. Do you know, there may be uh, clues in here that even I haven't spotted. And I've been doing this for bloody ages. So uh, I'm giving you evidence, but many of these pieces will come back again and again. So uh, and I also I don't want you to feel that it's too obvious so uh yeah lots of information here um if you're wondering why the police didn't link those two cases together um firstly they happened really fast literally as it was within 24 hours both cases um now i know even though they're within a mile of each other and although there weren't other murders around that time firstly we've got a very ineffectual police force because don't forget any man who was do you know, uh, physically fit of most policemen would be, would be sent overseas to fight in the war. So the police were under great pressure at that point. Uh, they had very few policemen. They were trying to keep control of, um, big cities and really struggling really hard. Um, also, Evelyn Hamilton was murdered. Even though they're both murdered in the West End, Evelyn Hamilton was murdered in Marlebone. Evelyn Oakley was murdered in Soho. They're two different police divisions. Um, now, I'll be discussing this in the later episode. So you'll know about this before everyone else. But uh, Soho is known as C Division. And I believe Marleybone is D Division. I still need to do my research on that, ready for the next episode. Um, and this is an era which obviously 
70, 80 years before the internet. So um, the only way that the police detectives would have shared information is by actually meeting and physically speaking, or if newspapers had got the information and had linked it somehow. So um, the only way that the police actually knew about this was through uh, Dr. Alexander Baldy, who was the divisional surgeon, and um, Sir Bernard Spilsby, the pathologist. So it was only after the autopsy that they kind of came together and went, hang on, there's a, there's a real similarity here, where a lot of the police divisions started sharing uh, information. And here a boat going past. And he's playing some jazz as well. There you go. Normally that will get edited out, but because this is extra mild, it doesn't get edited out. Um, one thing that I'll, I'll mention for you that regular listeners won't know about uh, is that you've already seen the Blackout Ripper. In fact, you've seen him twice already. Uh, I say he, see, I mean hear, uh, heard. Uh, the Blackout Ripper has made an appearance in this episode uh, and he made a very brief appearance in episode one as well. Um, message me if you want to, if you hear this, message me and tell me if you saw him and where you saw him, because he is there. Um, so episode three is coming up uh, next week. We'll be uh, diving really deep into the facts of this case. So um, not only will we, we be looking into the murder of, of Margaret Lowe, who was the next victim, and it's a very similar case... But what I'm going to be start doing with this is looking at what the police knew, what the pathologists knew. Um, as these three cases started to merge together, um, Margaret Lowe as well was murdered in Fitzrovia, which again is a different police borough uh, division. <coughs> um, what did the police know? What do we know about the murderer? What is he saying? What, what do we know about the attacker? Um, does he have patterns? We're going to start looking into things like that. So it'll be quite an interesting uh, episode, this next one. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to it. Uh, obviously, I've no idea how to write it. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll work it out. Literally, I just get all my information together and I just start writing and I just think, okay, how am I going to do this and see what see what pours out I, I tend to find it leads itself most of the time so uh this case also involved a lot of prostitutes um as with the ginger ray case episodes eight and nine um if you've listened to that one you know that I really that case really opened my eyes to the life of prostitutes I think when we're you see prostitutes uh, represented on television. Um, they tend to be drug addled, drunk, abused uh, from rough backgrounds and or they've been trafficked. And that's all you ever hear about prostitutes. And and yes, prostitutes, some prostitutes are drug addicts um, and have been trafficked and or abused. And, you know, that, that is their life. Digging into the lives of many of the prostitutes with the Ginger Ray case, because there were many uh, witnesses uh, who gave who were prostitutes who gave fantastic witness testimony. And in the Blackout Ripper case, there were loads of prostitutes in the area who gave a lot of information to the police. They were really critical and absolutely useful because don't forget, the men who picked up the prostitutes weren't going to give police any information at all. They were useless. But the prostitutes were amazing. And what um, it's th this has really given me a greater insight into into their lives and what they're really about. 
Um, and especially during war t- wartime, um, many women were out there just to make ends meet. They, they weren't prostitutes by trade. They had regular jobs. But obviously this is before the government uh, started using women properly in the war because obviously many women weren't allowed to fight and they'd only just started to allow women to uh, do munitions jobs like making ammunition things like that making do and actually if it wasn't for women world war ii would have gone entirely the wrong way we would have entirely lost it was women who actually became the coal miners they were the women who worked the canal system ferrying things back and forth women took over all the jobs that the men previously had before so women were absolutely invaluable but were still here's a familiar subject women were still paid really badly um so uh i think as you heard in the story we just had we had Anne carew uh who was a part-time waitress but also a prostitute uh, she worked at number three Lyle Street, a little cafe just around the corner. She wasn't making much money, but as a prostitute, she, for like two hours work a night, each woman would be making the equivalent of £300 a day, which is pretty damn good. I mean, that's good money for today. I mean, obviously that wouldn't happen every night, but if you average it out, it's £300 a day. That's not bad. Um interestingly uh this is me being distracted again uh on a stag do years ago uh i went into a lap dancing club not really one of my favorite places but i find it fascinating because you get a good insight into people um and it, it's fascinating to go in there because you see these guys sitting there thinking that they're like the the, the big i am and they've got their they've paid a hundred pounds for a bottle of crystal or something like that and they're sitting there with ladies around them and they think oh look at me i'm king farouk but it's a fantastic, fan, fascinating place because the men have no power and the women all have all the power at all. It's a fantastic place. Anyway, I was talking to um, uh, a lady there. Um, she asked me if I wanted to dance. I said, no, thank you. It's not really my thing, but thank you anyway. It was early. We, we were in a lap dancing club at four in the afternoon. I know, four in the afternoon. Pretty embarrassing. It was empty. She wasn't really that bothered. So we we're having a good chat. I was wearing a nice top with geisha girls on and she was asking me about my top and you know we got talking so i asked her why she uh, is a lab dancer and she said well i'm actually a nurse i'm studying to pass my degree um i need time to be able to study because there's a lot of work uh, but i also need to pay my way to get through uh, my university course and she said i have two choices either i can get a bar job where i'm paid like five pounds an hour and i get drunken assholes trying to grope me all day long or i come into here basically i do yoga but in the nude um and i get paid uh, like for a day's for like an evening's work she said i can get i can make two three four five maybe a thousand pounds she says i need to work one night a month and that's it that that funds me that funds my education and she says do you know what it's easy and if any of the men come anywhere near me there's bouncers everywhere there's cameras everywhere and if you touch me you get booted out and you get beaten up whereas in a bar a woman who was a bar lady just wouldn't get that kind of support so that was interesting but with um women who prostitute during the uh during wartime obviously it was you know many were women uh, sorry many were were housewives uh, many kept it quiet from their husbands it was a way of earning extra money um 
And do you know what? There were risks with that job, but um, many women did it. Um, but what I found through through this research was what a nice community it was. Um, all the women, very supportive, very caring, really looked after each other. And the more I read about them, the more I have uh, really super high respect for them. I mean, they were incredibly strong, incredibly strong and strong-willed and just, just fantastic, really amazing women. Um, as a side note, um, if anyone out there who lives in London uh, knows a prostitute or a former sex worker in in the London's West End, uh, whether recent or maybe decades ago, um, if you want, uh, get them to get in touch with me um, because I'd love to interview them for Extra Mile. Um, this is a little secret between us. Um, I'm working on the next new Extra Mile episodes. Do you know I did the uh, special one-offs before where I talked about where Extra Mile came from? Um, I'm planning some new ones. Uh, not talking about me, I'm planning to do interviews with really fascinating people who will give you a greater insight into London's West End and the crime within the West End. Um, potentially got one with a uh, with some policemen, some uh, police personnel coming up, and I just think it would be if I can get some uh, some interesting ex cons. I'm planning to do that, and and uh, a sex worker would be great just to sit down and discuss life as a sex worker. It might not come off, but let's give it a go. Okay, a couple of interesting things that have cropped up in this episode. Um, you've heard me before mention a restaurant called Monaco's, which a lot of people seem to go to. Uh, it was a familiar restaurant in the 1940s, very popular on the corner of Piccadilly Circus, literally where the big famous neon lights are today. Um, um, now that's moved originally was by the lights it's now been moved up Shaftesbury Avenue to number 39 uh it got moved there in the 1950s when Piccadilly Circus was expanded but if you are in London you can still go to it today it's called Cafe Monaco today um they've they've kept it as traditional as possible you can see what it looked like um when uh Evelyn Oakley and many of the prostitutes used to go there to pick up servicemen uh, I might try and get a picture of it uh, and put it on uh, social media. Uh, another thing that's interesting that I learned during this this uh, episode. When uh, a place is busy, people often say, oh, it's like Piccadilly Circus in here. Um, now, that phrase stemmed from the Second World War, because as with most of the lights being off off in London and the famous Piccadilly Circus lights off literally for the the whole duration of, of the Second World War so many people were flocking to the West End of London especially ex especially servicemen and people who just wanted to get away from the the boredom of their lives and you know have a bit of fun um there's such was the chance of you bumping into someone that you would know in Piccadilly Circus that it became a phrase god it's like Piccadilly Circus in here just another way of saying it's just really busy oh and uh one other thing that i found really interesting um there was uh i can't remember his name now um a senior british commander used to refer to the soho prostitutes as piccadilly commandos because apparently um it, whenever uh whenever because it was so dark 
whenever a serviceman would turn up and obviously a serviceman turns up he's there for three days he's been given a shore leave or whatever he's got money on him he's looking to buy drinks he's looking to buy food he's looking to have sex with ladies um as soon as the soho prostitutes would see a serviceman whether from army navy air uh, air force whatever from out the darkness they would pounce out of nowhere they would pounce and literally start flirting with him and that's why the senior british commander called them the piccadilly commandos <laughs> i thought it was a, a nice way to refer to them piccadilly commandos anyway um hope you enjoyed that that was extra mile for episode two of the blackout ripper we'll be back next week with episode three of the blackout ripper and uh hope to see you again have yourself a good day. Bye.